The scripture reading for today is taken from the Gospel of John, John 17, and this is the prayer of Jesus. So Jesus has just finished the entirety of his ministry on earth, and he has finally reached the point where he is going to go up to suffer and to die on the cross. This is after the supper that he has had, the last supper, the last Passover celebration which, uh, at which he uh, introduced the Lord's Supper to his disciples. And then after the time that he spent speaking with his disciples as they walked through the garden and uh, he he showed them the, the grapevines that were, and the vineyards that were all around saying, I am the vine, you are the branches. Now we come to chapter 17 where he has, where he has gone to pray for uh, his disciples, for himself as he moves forward and for his disciples and, and for the world. And this is John chapter 17, the verses 1 to 13 that we will be looking at today. Jesus spoke these words and lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may also glorify you. As you have given him authority over all flesh that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have glorified you on earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world, They were yours. You gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they have known that all things which you have have given me are from you. For I have given to them the words which you have given to me, and they have received them, and have known surely that I came forth from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And all mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. Now, I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to you. Holy Father, keep through your name those whom you have given me, that they may be one as we are. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those whom you gave me, I have kept. And none of them is lost except the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. So far the word of God. Now, this afternoon, we'll be looking at God's Word as summarized in Lord's Day 36, and that's specifically dealing with the name of God. As we have seen Jesus reference the name of God several times again over the course of his prayer here. 
Lord's Day 36, and you can find that on page 553 of your book of praise. What is required in the third commandment? We are not to blaspheme or abuse the name of God by cursing, perjury, or unnecessary oaths, nor to share in such horrible sins by being silent bystanders. Rather, we must use the holy name of God only with fear and reverence so that we may rightly confess him, call upon him, and praise him in all our words and works. Is the blaspheming of God's name by swearing and cursing such a grievous sin that God is angry also with those who do not prevent it and forbid it as much as they can? Certainly. For no sin is greater or provokes God's wrath more than the blaspheming of his name. That is why he commanded it to be punished with death. So far. beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane here, and he knows that it's moments before his arrest. He knows here in John chapter 17 that it will be one of his dearest 12 friends, his own disciple Judas, who will use this opportunity offered him by him being away from the crowds and quietly spending some time with his disciples, quietly spending some time alone with his father. His disciple Judas is going to seize on this opportunity to turn him over to the authorities, to betray him and have him condemned. He knows all of this will end in his crucifixion. So knowing all of this, what does he do in these final hours? He prays, not just for himself and for what is going to happen. He does do that. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may also glorify you. That's praying for himself as he is about to go up to this great moment, this pivotal moment in history. But he he doesn't just pray for himself, but he prays for his church, for his people. And that extends to you and me today. I want you to notice something in particular today as we look at this passage. Jesus Christ's work up to this point has been for one reason. Verse 3, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. The knowing that is talked about here isn't just any kind of knowing. It can be used to know someone intimately. Obviously, the Jews knew about God. And obviously, the nations around knew that there was a God out there somewhere, which is where their idolatry, their worship of false gods, pointed them to But here, knowing something is something much more intimate. This is what Jesus wants his disciples to know his Father 
as. It's a kind of knowing that comes with having a relationship with someone. You might know the cashier at the grocery store in passing, but you know your wife or your husband much more. You know their likes and their dislikes, what makes them tick. And that's the kind of knowing that Jesus is talking about here. His work was to make the Father more fully known. Verse 6, I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. I have put it on display so that everybody can see and understand these men whom, who have been given to him. They were yours, he says, and you gave them to me and they have kept your word. Now they have known that all things which you have given me are from you. This is made clear because he has put his father's name on display. And what's his prayer in light of that? That this knowing, this intimate relationship would bring glory to God and to his name. Verse 4, I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. But this brings up something for us to reflect on as we look at these words and at this prayer of Jesus, doesn't it? Think about this for a moment. How intimate do you really want your relationship to be with God and with the name of God? Is your view of God someone who is constantly on the lookout for any evil thing that you do? Someone who will judge and condemn every false step that you take? This will be important to reflect on as we consider this third commandment today. What does the name of God mean to you? What is your view of God? Why are you obedient to him? Are you obedient because you see him as the judge that looms over you? Or because you see him as the only source of all good? The one from whom every good thing comes? The one who loves you and saves you? It is terribly hard to be intimate with someone when you believe that they are standing in judgment over you all the time. We can see this in our human relationships. How much more so if, in your mind, it is God himself who does this. With this in mind, I proclaim to you the word of God under the following theme. Glorify the name of the one who knows you. And we'll see, first of all, the name, second, the knowledge, and last of all, the glory. In order to answer these questions, we are going to step back and take a look at the third commandment. Today's commandment says this, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Why is this a big deal? What's in a name? 
A name is more than just something that you call someone by when you're considering what a name means in the Bible. A name has wrapped up in it someone's reputation, who he is in terms of identity. To treat someone's name as a curse then was a serious thing. If you look back, you can see how this played out in history. There was a time when the greatest of the Jewish kings, King David, was being cursed. This was at a very hard time during David's life. Absalom, his son, wanted to kill him and take the throne for himself. And so David had to run for his life. Now, while David ran, a man named Shimei followed him. From a bank beside the road, he threw down dirt and stones on David, showering him with them. In 2 Samuel 16, we read how Shimei curses him, calling him a rogue, a man of blood who stole his kingdom, and treating him as if he was nothing. He was cursing him. Not in the sense of bewitching him. Not in the sense of calling down God's wrath on him. He was misusing his name. He was belittling his name and saying that his power was nothing. That it was stolen power. And that he was nothing. One commentator writes here that the Hebrew word for cursing here contains the idea of declaring someone a non-entity and despicable, nothing and worthless. Something similar happens already earlier in history as well, in the book of Judges, when one of the citizens of Shechem challenges the judge Abimelech's power, and he says this, Who is Abimelech that we should serve him? Judges 9 verse 28. What he's saying here is Abimelech is nothing. He is worthless. So how does this relate to God's glory and our passage in John today where Jesus is praying? Well, Jesus was sent to earth saying in verse 3 that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. God had made a name for himself. And in verse 6, Jesus goes on to say, I have manifested your name to the men whom you had given me out of the world. God had made a name for himself. He made a name for himself as creator of the universe. But not just that. He made a name for himself as defender and redeemer of his people Israel. You can see this time and time again as when they uh, were rescued out of Egypt. He was the one who rescued them. And during the time of judges, time and time as they fell away and came under the judgment of the surrounding nations, God was the one who stepped in and rescued them. And again, when they were sent into exile, God was the one who intervened and brought them back to the land. He made a name for himself as defender and redeemer of his people, Israel. And this is why he gave them that name, Yahweh. This is why he reminds them 
in the prologue or the introduction to the Ten Commandments, I am Yahweh, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. This is the name that Jesus is expanding on when he is preaching. This is the God who passed before Moses in Exodus chapter 34, verse 6, saying, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth. Yahweh, Yahweh, this is what identifies him. This is who he is. The entirety of his saving work has shown this to be the name that he has made for himself. Those people rebelled against him time and time again. We see again in Psalm 106. Psalm 106 verse 8. Nevertheless, he saved them for his name's sake. That he might make his mighty power known. Now, as Jesus is praying, we can see the pieces falling into place. How much more has this not been the case with Jesus Christ himself? Jesus, who came to earth as defender and redeemer of his people. Jesus, who came to suffer and to die so that whoever believes in him might have eternal life. Jesus, who in the last of these, this heaviest hour, thinks of his people. He embodies the name of his heavenly Father. He's the living picture of the grace and the patience and the mercy of his Father. As the picture of the justice of God rises in our minds when we think of the things that we do wrong, so too ought the picture of his mercy to rise in our minds. Because his mercy rose to match his justice. To pay that penalty that he might make his mighty power known. This is the name that God has made for himself. This is the name that Jesus made for himself during this time on earth. Verse 6 again. I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. Now, The third commandment. To curse God is to make light of, to take lightly the God who is terrifying in power and who is the creator of all things and yet chose to show such mercy, yet chose to be the defender of his people. As we saw defined earlier, to curse is to declare someone to be insignificant or despicable in the use of their name and who they are. To say that they are nothing, that they mean nothing to you, that they are worthless. This is what the result is when we blaspheme or abuse the name of God, as our Lord's Day puts it, by cursing, perjury, or unnecessary oaths. This is not what Christ wants for his people. Not to stand over and against God in this way. Christ wants something else for his people and for his Father whom he so loves. 
Christ in his prayer prays that having come to know God, his disciples might do the flip side of what we find here. His disciples might glorify his Father and that through their actions and their words, Christ himself might also be glorified. Verse 10. But in order for that to happen, we need to hear what Jesus said to us about knowing the Father and the Father knowing his people. And that brings us to the second point, the knowledge At this point, I want to briefly come back to that question that we touched down on earlier. Is your view of God someone who is constantly on the lookout for every evil thing you do? Someone who is going to slap you down into submission? Do you obey and live in constant fear because he is watching you instead of obeying out of thankfulness and love? Consider these words of verse 11. Holy Father, keep through your name, so now we understand what name means, the reference to all of who God is, his whole reputation, his goodness, and his mercy. Holy Father, keep through your name those whom you have given me, that they may be one as we are. This is the Father who knows through and through. And Jesus is praying that this Father, whom he made known to his disciples and who knows you, might keep through his name those who have been given to him. He knows you through and through. Consider this in relation to what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 12. He says there, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall fully know, just as I also am known. In that verse, the Apostle Paul is talking about a future day when we will be enjoying the the fullness of being perfected, when we will live with God in eternity, and when we will come to know him fully. But think of it, what, think of what he takes for granted here, what he just kind of slides over as he's talking about that final day. He's saying, I shall know fully the God Jesus Christ may, came to make known to us. I will know him fully just as I also am known. If you believe in Jesus Christ, then you can trust that though he knows you, you have still been given to the Son, that you belong, body and soul, in life and death, to your faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, and you are safe in him. But Remember again what knowing means. I shall know fully just as I also am known. Remember again that knowing points to something more special than just a passing knowing someone at the grocery store. 
He knows everything. He knows who you are. He knows what you have done. He knows what you continue to do now. And he knows what you will do, good and bad. He knows every part of it. Mankind created by God owes everything to God, and God owes nothing to mankind. Yet God, before time began, chose to show his love in giving his son, promising to give his son. Even though before time began, he knew how it would all unfold. He knew that Peter would deny Jesus, and yet he gave Peter to Jesus. He knew that James and John were prone to uh, fall prey to ambition, to let their mom try to get them places of authority beside Jesus, and yet he gave James and John to Jesus. He knew Simon the Zealot's past life, that he was seen as a radical and a terrorist in the eyes of the Roman government, just by the sake even of having that name, Zealot, attached to his name. And yet he gave Simon the Zealot to Jesus. He knew all of the brokenness of these men, past, present, and future, and yet he chose to give them to Jesus. He knows all of your brokenness, past, present, and future, and yet if you believe in him, you put your trust in his name, you turn from your sins and ask for forgiveness and follow Jesus, you belong to Jesus too. The Father has given you to Jesus too. In the garden, when he prayed, he prayed for you too. On the cross, He suffered for you. You are redeemed. You are given to Jesus. Holy Father, keep through your name those whom you have given me, that they may be one as we are. He didn't redeem you because you were perfect. He didn't save you because you did all the right things. He saves you because you needed saving And because despite everything he knows about you, he's still chosen to set his love on you. For the sake of his name, he has chosen to give you to Jesus. Should this not create some kind of response in us? It should. And that's what this commandment brings to light today as well. I am the Lord. I am Yahweh. Remember what was wrapped up in the name. I am Yahweh, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And now the third commandment. You shall not take the name of Yahweh, your God, in vain. This is how God frames the command not to take his name in vain. To begin with, he draws attention to Yahweh, that personal name that he gave to his people, beginning in Exodus 3, verse 14. This is what I am to you. I am your deliverer. I am your defender. So don't take my name in vain, because this is who I am to you. Yahweh, 
the name that speaks of a tender relationship and of love and of belonging. The name that speaks of a God who knows you, knows where you came from. I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. It shows that God knew where they came from and that he cared about them even before he delivered them. There's a recognition of the sinfulness and brokenness and he remembered that they served the gods of Egypt when they were in slavery there and yet he is the one who delivered them. And in the second place that he wants us to respond in a similar way. He loved us and so he's calling us to respond in love for him. To the light in the deliverance that he's given them. If someone rescues you from horrific danger, and if someone loves you, don't slander them and hate them, he says. To do so would be a betrayal that he wouldn't overlook. That's why he says, the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain, because this is what is wrapped up in his name, and if he has shown such goodness then to take that and to crush it underfoot would be one of the worst possible things that you could do. You love him. God, by repeating the name, pointing to the covenant relationship, he is reminding them of the love that took the first step. And so in response to deliverance from slavery, He calls us to remember and honor that name. Knowing what you know about him. What he knows about you and yet what he has still chosen to do for you. Ought you not to respond in reverence and in adoration? We don't know him fully yet as that passage in Corinthians said. But we know enough. We know that he has made a name for himself as our creator and our redeemer, and his name is wonderful. Because of this, we are not only not to take his name in vain, but rather for those who believe in Jesus, knowing that he knows us, knowing what he's done for us despite all of that, then we know that we want to, as our catechism says, Use his name with fear and reverence. Rightly confess him and call upon him and praise him in all our words and works. In a word, we want to bring him glory. And this brings us to our third point. Now, if we look at ourselves we may feel like we don't necessarily have a good track record on this commandment. I mean, we don't necessarily blaspheme or abuse the name of God by cursing perjury or unnecessary oaths. But there are other ways in which we stumble. Consider this. The very same same King David who we talked about before, whose name was cursed, he himself is rebuked for causing the nations around to misuse and belittle God's name, to make God's name to be a curse among the nations. What happened that this unfolded? 
That was when he committed adultery with Bathsheba and murdered her husband. In 2 Samuel 12, verse 14, we read that foreigners scorned Yahweh and blasphemed his name because of the way David treated Bathsheba and Uriah. When we are hypocrites in word or in action, it gives reason for those who are around to scorn the God whom we claim to have a relationship with. And it brings shame on the name Christian and on the reputation of those who follow Jesus. They see that we don't take his name seriously enough to follow him any further than we feel is necessary. If we don't feel like it, or if we are triggered enough, or if we are tempted enough, then just we go back and do whatever we want. So why should they follow him then? And that brings shame on his name. Yet there are times when all of us do that, isn't there? And there will continue to be on this side of eternity. Even if others might not see, if we look at our own hearts, there are times when we feel the weight of our shortcomings. There may be times in particular when our hypocrisy stands out brightly. When by our actions, our words, or our thoughts, we declare God to be less than he is. Well, for this area of my life, for about five minutes, he means nothing to me. And then we hear Jesus pray this in his prayer. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. How am I glorified in him if by my hypocrisy I make his name a curse? Remember again, to curse is to take a name lightly, to declare someone to be nothing, despicable. And that's what we do when we embrace sin. In contrast, to give glory is to give weight to the name. The Hebrew word for glory is kavod, which means heavy, weighty, or significant. To respond to what God has done isn't just stepping back from taking his name lightly, but it's to give God glory. But how do we do that? Christ says, I am glorified in them, and yet we are broken sinners. He is glorified in us when his work is shown before his heavenly Father. He is glorified in us when he presents us as a clean slate before God. Christ is made great exactly because he is a great Savior. Because he redeems us. He takes the filthy. He takes the broken takes the sinner, and in the very act of becoming our Savior and our Liberator, His name is glorified. How does this then spill over into our lives and our glorifying Him? 
We talked about how it's hard to be intimate with someone who is standing over you, judging you, pointing your every shortcoming out. Is that your view of God? That's not God. Let us pray for forgiveness and for our eyes to be open to his mercy and grace if that's the way we respond to him. Know that he's the one who already knows you through and through. He's the one who still, despite that, chose to send his son for you, knowing who you are, who chose to give you to his son. That was not just a passive thing, but the Father, Jesus says, gave them to him. With someone who was high-handed, you, you might be tempted to hide your flaws, your weaknesses and insecurities. But Jesus Christ, coming up on his darkest hour, even when he was on the point of going to the cross for your sins, those things that you are most ashamed of, he prayed for you. And then he died for you. With God, you are free to be vulnerable and to confess everything and to know that if you come to him in true repentance and turn from your sin, leaning on Jesus Christ alone, you will be saved. Yes, we do sin by our actions. Yes, this this shows inconsistency. It shows hypocrisy in our lives. But this shouldn't drive us away from God in fear. Instead, we recognize that for those who have put their trust in Jesus Christ, he knows us. And he already knew this before it happened. So this should bring us to our knees before him to repent and give him the glory. It should remind us of the name of God. It should remind us that it's precisely for sinners like you and for me that Jesus came. And when we come on our knees before God and we give him the glory for showing his mercy to us despite knowing who we are, despite the covers coming off for us ourselves and we see ourselves even more for who we are. This brings us joy. Verse 13, Christ prays, Now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. It brings us joy that he came for us and that because we were given to him by the Father, we can come to him again and again for forgiveness and a fresh start every day. When we come to Jesus Christ, our Redeemer, when we recognize him as that, then we see his name, and his name carries weight. When we confess to the world, to those whom we harmed, and those who saw our hypocrisy, that what we did was wrong, that what we did was sinful and unacceptable to God, that we want to right the wrongs for his name's sake, that we seek 
forgiveness for his name's sake. That makes his name have weight. That gives his name glory. And when he is given glory in this way, and we feel the effects of his name in our own forgiveness, though we ourselves might become smaller from a human perspective because of it, though we might ourselves be diminished, made less in the eyes of others, Christ is then made big. Christ is glorified. And that brings us joy. That is the joy of a redeemed people because they are a forgiven people and they are a dependent people. Loved ones, glorify the name of the one who knows you. Amen.